Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the saints who have gone before us. Thank you for those who have uh, set an example of faithfulness. And God, we just pray that, um, that their lives, and particularly today, the life of Martin Luther King Jr., would be uh, an inspiration to us to live according to your will and to your word uh, in the world around us. We ask, God, that you would bless this time uh, for your own glory and the edification of your church and the edification of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so we are uh, indeed uh, going through a, we're going to look in Epiphany at uh, seasons of, um, oh, this, I'm sorry, this season of Epiphany, we're looking at moments in the lives of individual Christians throughout history, uh, saints, whether they have, they're recognized, canonized saints or not, um, that we are going to take a look at uh, in order to see what was the moment, is that it, Rick? Good. What was the moment uh, that, or series of moments in their life that sort of turned their heart towards the service of the Lord? And uh, today, I just because it's Martin Luther King weekend, I felt like it was important to look at Martin Luther King. And I will tell you, I didn't leave myself enough time. Once I got into it, it is a, it is just a monumental. I don't know where. I mean, I expect it, it is a monumental task. And Martin Luther King is a complex uh, individual. Wonderful, obviously, but incredibly complex. And so um, what, I, what I found uh, about Martin Luther King, he's a lot, uh, he's similar to C.S. Lewis in the fact that everybody wants him. Uh, uh, whether you're conservative or liberal or evangelical or mainline, everybody uh, wants to say Martin Luther King is, uh, is, belongs to us. Um, and, uh, and he was... You know, he was raised in a very uh, conservative Black Baptist church, and so conservatives want to say that you know he was influenced from his on his uh, from his daddy's knee and from the, from the preaching of his his father. Uh, he was educated in liberal seminaries, so liberal folks want to say he is uh, he belongs to us, and all, we're responsible for uh, forming him to uh, create what what he created. Everybody wants a peace, and, and yet. Um, I, I think it's fair to say uh, that Martin Luther King Jr. Um, belongs to all of us and we belong to him. Uh, he uh, had a dream uh, that there would, we would see each other. We would not see uh, color, but we would see character. And, um, and I think that we belong to that. And, and so uh, it doesn't, you know, we can all talk about theology. And you, as for someone who was as controversial and as important uh, to American history as Martin Luther King Jr., uh, we can. Uh, it is not going to be surprising to us that there is much scholarly debate. There's a whole field of study just dedicated uh, to his life and his influence, and what influenced him. And um, and so, uh, the more I got into it, the more I realized I wasn't. I really probably going to scratch the surface much. But we'll, we will see what we got this morning. Um, uh, one of the main things that I'm using is a, is a really neat book that, that I've come across called Finding God is a Treasury of Conversion Stories. And so it's, uh, it's really neat. Uh, I mean, Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, Billy Sunday, Malcolm Muggeridge, Billy Graham, Martin Luther King Jr., Charles Spurgeon, Leo Tolstoy. I mean, just it's really neat. So there's a lot in there. And it's, it's um, where possible... 
it's in the in their own language. I mean, there is them telling their stories about about their conversion. And so Martin Luther King Jr. is in this in this book, and I have a lot of that. So Martin Luther King Jr. was born on January fifteenth, nineteen twenty nine, right before uh, the Great Depression. And so uh, he grew up looking at um, at uh, bread lines, you know, and so. It was a um, uh, it was something that he was really uh, attuned to because his family was actually pretty well well off uh, within the black community because he was also in uh, a very segregated society. He was born in Atlanta, uh, so 1929 uh, in January uh, he was of course assassinated 50 years ago this year, April 4th, 1967. Many of you remember uh, when that happened. Uh, and at least one of you has said, I can't believe it was 50 years ago because that means I remember something 50 years ago. So we might say that, he, that in his life, Martin Luther King had a series uh, of epiphanies. And again, I just want to say again, I'm so humbled. I mean, the more I got into it, that, uh, the more humbled I am. To, I, I'm not qualified, really, to lead this discussion. But, um, but I, I hope I can do honor to, to him and to his, uh, his legacy. So he had a series of uh, epiphanies, a complex evolution of thought, uh, belief, and action. Um, but we can certainly say that he, uh, he was an agent of epiphany uh, in the, the conscience of the heart, the minds of millions of individuals, and certainly uh, the conscience of our nation. So uh, Martin was born into the family business, uh, in a sense. Uh, this is, and Martin said this, he said, I grew up in church, my father is a preacher. My grandfather was a preacher. My great-grandfather was a preacher. My only brother is a preacher. My daddy's brother is a preacher, so I didn't have much choice. <laughs> you may know that he was born Michael King Jr. That was his given born name. His father was Michael King Sr. But his father was uh, the um, Baptist pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. And in 1934, uh, Michael King went to uh, Berlin to, uh, to the World Baptist Alliance. And isn't that interesting? The World Baptist Alliance was held in Berlin in 1934, which would have been just right in the, the heart of Nazi Germany. Now, I don't have a lot of the history there, but what was... In, and to be a... a you know about... Um, uh, the, the, the Olympics and just all the controversy there and, and um, Jesse Owens and, and, and just and so to think about this black pastor going there and he was so captivated by the legacy and the story of Martin Luther that he changed both his name and his son's name. So he wanted to change his name to Martin Luther uh, King and, but he had a problem because his son was, couldn't be Michael King Jr. if his name was uh, Martin Luther, so he had to change his son's name too. And just think about how prophetic that was. His son was five years old, Martin Luther. They called him ML. That did? And Martin Luther which you know is just one of my heroes, stood against a system 
that was oppressive and wrong uh, in the Catholic Church, who spoke into the heart and the conscience of a nation and turned the tide in such a way that it changed the world. Martin Luther turned the hearts of the people back to Scripture and let them understand the doctrine of justification, uh, that they are saved by grace and not, um, uh, not through works. That the practice of indulgences was wrong. That was really the thing that, um, that started the, the whole thing. But to see the similarities, I mean, there's obviously great differences, but to see the similarities uh, in the, uh, the influence and the, uh, the stand against a massive, oppressive cultural uh, system is to say, and, and I, listen, I understand that there are different uh, differences of opinion about what the Roman Catholic Church was in that time, but it's certainly from Martin Luther's perspective, that's what it was. And so just as there's, um, certainly at the time of Martin Luther King, uh, there was differences of opinion about it. We're, pre- we're pretty unified on that, not, not 100% uh, now. But to say that, that he was, at five years old, named after someone uh, who stood against the, this oppressive system uh, and changed the world, and then he, that he would go on to stand against an oppressive system and change the world, is remarkable. I just think it is amazing. Um, so he was, uh, his mother was Alberta Williams King. And Alberta, uh, he would ask, he was an incredibly intelligent child. Uh, well, and man, if you've read any of his writings. But incredibly intelligent. And Alberta um, would answer his questions about, uh, about the things that he saw. Why are there different water fountains? Why are there different buses? Why are there different bathrooms? And, um, and she explained the segregation around him in terms of a social condition as opposed to being part of the natural order. You can see how important that is. This is not the way God intended it, but it is the condition of humanity, that we are separate. And she said something very important to him over and over in a way that made a profound impact on him. You must never, uh, you must never let this system make you feel inferior. And he took that to heart. She said, you are as good as anyone. Mm-hmm. So, again, he was raised in church, and he joined the church at age five. If, uh, for those of you from uh, Baptist uh, backgrounds, you know that what that means is that the altar call at the end of service, uh, that they say, who would like to join the church? Well, what happened was his older sister came forward, and, and he uh, wanted to keep up with his sister. <laughs> So one of the great influencers of uh, religious thought in all of uh, history, and certainly all of American history, uh, would join the church, not out of any, uh, as he says, not out of any sense of dynamic conviction, but in an effort to keep up with my big sister. Uh, and I just think that that is a precious story. But also, because of course then he was baptized, and we, what I always teach about baptism is that uh, baptism as just as much, even if it's a believer's baptism, like, like his was uh, in that tradition, that it is just as much and probably more so about the promise of God over you rather than the promises you're making to God. And so when God saw this child, this chosen um, Moses-like voice, that he, his promise over him was that you're going to change the world. That's just an amazing thing. And, and so he, even though he wasn't baptized out of a dynamic conviction, uh, he was uh, certainly God was faithful 
to his promises over this, uh, this man. He was a, a child of, of great intellect, as I said, and he, uh, going into his uh, early teenage years, uh, in su- Sunday school was a big thing for him. Uh, Sunday school, he says, where he learned to get along with all sorts of people. Um, as is the, you know, the church can do that. I don't know if you know about that. Um, and, um, but he also que- really began to question his faith. And he came out, uh, in, this, in this book, he, he talks about coming out and questioning the bodily resurrection of Jesus and saying that as a 13-year-old or whatever, he, he, didn't, he didn't believe that. And it you know, kind of shocked that. Now, this book doesn't close the loop. So I actually, I don't know if he, he came back uh, around uh, on that, uh, which is a pretty important point, isn't it? A very pretty important point. Um, there are some stories that, I, that I'm going to talk to you about that, I, that would make me think that he probably did. Uh, but, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know. But there were two, two incredibly important events in his childhood that shaped how he thought about the racial divide that he found in the country. When he was a, a small child, he had a, a, a white friend, a white playmate. Uh, he was the son of a, a man who owned a store across the street from, from their church. And they played together often, and, and he, you know, they were just friends. They, you know, racism is a, is a learned thing. And, and so he didn't know any difference. They didn't know any difference. But when they reached a certain age, the, the white father uh, would not allow them to play together anymore. And, and Martin talks about the loss that he felt there. And he uh, began to have this seed of hatred uh, for white people in, uh, because of that. Later, uh, in his, uh, when he was in high school, and he like, skipped a couple of grades he was, he was, because he was so smart. He went to college when he was uh, 16 at Morehouse College in Atlanta. But um, he was invited to, to go down to, uh, I believe it's Dublin, Georgia, uh, and to, um, uh, with his teacher, Mrs. Bradley. Uh, and on a, they rode a bus down there, and he was uh, to give a uh, submission to an essay contest. His, the title of his uh, essay was The Negro and the Constitution. Well, of course, he won. He won that uh, contest. And they got back on the bus, and then at one of the stops early on in the trip back, um, some white folks got on, and he was uh, required to get up. The bus driver told him to get up and give his, his seat. To the white people, and he wasn't going to do it. And his hesitation uh, irked the bus driver in such a way that he uh, laced uh, him with profanity. Just uh, just came out hard against him, which made Martin want to dig in even further and and uh, further his conviction uh, that he had been growing in his heart. And Mrs. Bradley uh, said that this was not the time, and he needed to just stand up. And so he did. And he and Miss Bradley. Uh, rode the uh, bus standing up in the aisle for 90 minutes back to Atlanta. And he said that is the angriest he had ever been in his life uh, at the time that he made this, uh, this account. And yet, through this, his parents taught him, as he expressed his, his concern, his parents said that the response is not to hate white people, but the response, the Christian response, is love. So that was he. He was he was caught in this tension as a young man, as you can understand, a young man uh, being someone who, with incredible uh, intellect, he's questioning his faith. He's feeling this, this anger, 
And he goes to college. And, and the president of Morehouse College is a man named Dr. Benjamin Mays. And Mays was a, a great man of faith and a great man of intellect and, and really gave Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther King uh, confidence that he could marry his substantial intellect uh, with the, the faith of his family. He went on to read uh, Henry David Thoreau, and particularly uh, Thoreau on, uh, um, called On Civil Disobedience. Now, if you've, if you've read any of Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, writings, he quotes people from all over history. Uh, his his uh, letter from a Birmingham jail is one of the most remarkable pieces of literature that I have uh, ever read. And to think, I mean, it, it, that he wrote that sitting on a, the floor of a jail cell uh, and didn't have any books around him. Everything he wrote is just from, from his, his knowledge. If I were to approach a tenth of that intellect, I would have stacks and stacks of, of books around me. But just to think, it's just amazing uh, to think uh, that. And so, but one of, the, one of the early influences was Henry David Thoreau uh, in the book On Civil Disobedience. And he was fascinated that Thoreau would rather go to jail than pay taxes to a, what he perceived to be a corrupt government. Uh, another, another deep influence was um, Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, as he went on, he went to Crozer uh, Seminary and then uh, Boston University to get his PhD, all as a very young man. Uh, he entered the ministry at 25. Um, uh, he was uh, all through seminary and, and, and through his PhD, he was a minister, but he, he accepted the call to... Um, uh, the church in Montgomery, and I didn't write down the name of the church in Montgomery. Somebody tell me, do you remember the name of this church in Montgomery? Anyway, we, it would be easy to find out. But, um, but, it's, uh, but he, entered, he became the pastor there at, at 25. Ebenezer was his, his, um, his father's church. But um, anyway, so uh, Dr. Mordecai Johnson of Howard University, he didn't go to Howard. Uh, I mean, King didn't go to Howard, but... Um, but Dr. Johnson had come back from a, a trip to India and, it, and taught about the, um, the pacifism of Mahatma Gandhi. And so, uh, and of course, Gandhi wasn't a Christian. But uh, King began to read deeply uh, into Gandhi and was fascinated, again, by this idea that Gandhi... Uh, his whole civil, civil disobedience was rooted in love, not in hate, hatred. And these began to really uh, be formative. These ideas began to be really formative for, uh, for King and was, was really the seed of his creative uh, nonviolent resistance movement. Uh, while he could walk across a bridge screaming uh, with, with people screaming at him and... Um, and feel legitimately in his heart that what he was doing was out of love for the people. He could look into their, the sin of their, their action. Uh, another influence was, because uh, he was educated in, the, uh, in Protestant liberalism, which had a very, very optimistic view of human nature. If you, if you believe it, you can do it. Um, you know, humanity is innately good. And he came across the, uh, and so he wanted to believe this, and yet it didn't really line up with uh, what he saw and what he kind of felt in his own heart. And he came across the, the writings of a, a scholar named uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. 
And uh, Niebuhr was a, a hardened pacifist, which initially was, was um, important for King. But Niebuhr's pacifism looked more like um, retreat, uh, disengagement. And that wasn't very satisfying. But what Niebuhr did is he really articulated the human condition as one uh, as, uh, as desperately sinful. Uh, that there was no aspect of humanity that was um, not touched or tainted uh, by sin, which is to say, uh, rebellion against God. So he could see, King could see that we were. You can see all these different influences coming in a confluence, taking the best of these things. And he he believed that he could be a pacifist, but not with disengagement, through engagement. Not through hatred, uh, but through love. Um, And so, the last thing that I uh, can say is that he, uh, and I've told this story before, I think, in a sermon about a year ago, um, that when he was in Montgomery, he was, of course, the, um, the president of the Southern uh, Leadership Conference, and he had a Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And, um, and he had a, um, a pivotal role in the Montgomery bus boycotts. And uh, he received death threats. And he received death threats all, all the time. There was one that really shook him, called him in the middle of the night, uh, said in three days, you know, I'm coming. If you're not out of town, I'm I'm going to kill you and all your family, and um, and described in detail uh, what he was going to do. And it was just it really, really shook King, and he couldn't get couldn't get it out of his mind. And he was up uh, late, late one night with a cup of coffee, and he um, he kind of looked across the landscape of his. Uh, his education, his upbringing, and he could not find an answer in any or any hope in the idea that humanity was inherently good. And he heard a voice saying, you must return to the God that your father taught you about. And, um, and so it was, it was an extraordinary moment, the kitchen vision, they call it, of, um, of a, an epiphany moment for King to turn... Uh, again and again and again and again, but in that moment to turn again to to the God that he had been raised with, uh, not abandoning the intellect and the intellectual um, opportunities that he that he had, but to but to sort of concretize all of those uh, those things that he had learned in this wonderful vision that really culminated in his 1963 speech on the on the on the uh, mall in Washington that he has a dream that one day his children and white children will be able to play together and that we would not be judged by the color of our skin, but by the um, strength of our character. Uh, he identified himself. If you can hear um, his, his writings and, and hear his speeches, he identified himself in, in large part with Moses. Um, he, he said, I've gone up on the mountain and I've seen the promised land and I may not get there uh, with you. And I wish if if you had, do yourself a favor and just uh, type in on YouTube Martin Luther King. I've uh, I've been up on the mountain, and you'll 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 see you'll see that speech. It, it was the speech that was actually given uh, the night he before he was assassinated in Memphis. He said, 
Uh, and actually, I've got, I've got that, and I won't do it. I won't preach it like he can preach it, but um, you'll see he's so gifted. He said, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter now because I have been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And He has allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I have looked over. And I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Amen. And he was shot hours later. Isn't that amazing? One thing that I learned uh, in this um, brief study, an insufficient study, is that, that as he progressed in his leadership of civil rights, and particularly in this uh, nonviolent movement, that he was, um, that there were those who, who were very frustrated that he was not moving aggressively enough or quickly enough, who wanted him to be much more violent uh, than he was. Just like Christ. And, and so, um, and so, and then as the, as the Vietnam War came up, uh, he stood out against the Vietnam War, and he, um, and he took all sorts of heat from the black community and the white community for that. So he was, he was controversial uh, on all sides, uh, like, like Jesus was. So the, um, what, what is uh, amazing uh, is really, I mean, there's lots of things that are, are amazing uh, about him. But his, his this um, kinship that he had, and I'm going to talk about, uh, read what he has to say about suffering. And, um, and you can see Jesus just in that. This is what he says. He's really sort of learning to marry Niebuhr and Gandhi. Um, it says, Gandhi resisted evil with as much vigor and power as the violent resistor, but he resisted with love instead of hate. True pacifism is not unrealistic submission to evil power, as Niebuhr contends. Uh, It is rather courageous confrontation of evil by the power of love, in the faith that it is better to be the recipient of violence than the inflictor of it. Let me say that again. It is better to be the recipient of violence than the inflictor of it. Since the latter, the inflictor, uh, only multiplies the existence of violence and bitterness in the universe, while the former, the recipient of, of violence, the former may develop a sense of shame in the opponent and thereby bring about transformation and a change of heart. That is some maturity. He never saw suffering as a good, but he definitely saw a good God as, as able to redeem suffering. And this is what he said, and I'll, and I'll close here and you can make comments or, or ask questions that I may or may not know the answer to, but um, says, the thing that we need in the world today is a group of men and women who will stand up for right and be opposed to wrong wherever it is. A group of people who have come to see that some things are wrong whether they're, whether they're never caught up with. 
Some things are right, whether nobody sees you doing them or not. All I'm trying to say is our world hinges on moral foundations. God has made it so. God has made the universe to be based on a moral law. This universe hinges on moral foundations. There is something in this universe that justifies Carlyle in saying no lie can live forever. There is something in this universe that justifies William Cullen Bryant in saying truth crushed to earth will rise again. There is something in this universe that justifies James Russell Lowell in saying truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. With that scaffold sways the future, behind the dim unknown stands God within the shadow keeping watch above His own. There is something in this universe that justifies the biblical writer in saying, you shall reap what you sow. As a young man with most of my life ahead of me, I decided early to give my life to something eternal and absolute. Not to these little gods that are here today and gone tomorrow, but to God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm not going to put my ultimate faith in the little gods that can be destroyed in an atomic age, but the God who has been our help in ages past and our hope for years to come and our shelter in the time of storm and our eternal home. That's the God I'm putting my ultimate faith in. The God that I'm talking about this morning is the God of the universe and the God that will last through the ages. And if we are to go forward this morning, we've got to go back and find that God. This is the God that demands and commands our ultimate allegiance. If we are to go forward, we must go back and rediscover these precious values that all reality hinges on moral foundations and that all reality has spiritual control. You can see in his, um, his faith in God the Father and His willingness to suffer um, for what was right, His uh, the formation that he found looking at the person uh, of Jesus. So that's what I have to say, and um, we've just about filled the time. We've got about six or seven minutes for comment or question. Yes, Virginia. I had the privilege, oh, six or eight years ago, I guess, of going to the memorial in Memphis with a group of Episcopal communicators standing where he stood when he was shot. Mm. And there were hundreds of people there. Mm. It is a spot of pilgrimage, and they weren't all black either. Sure. It's, it's a place of pilgrimage like the Holy Ghost. Mm. It's wonderful, yeah. and it is so. Mm. Yeah, thank you. That's a place to go. Wonderful. Yeah, you know, I've been reading uh, through the prophets, and the prophets have a lot to say about um, the human condition and the human willingness to oppress, um, particularly the, uh, the prophets are the hardest on Israel, who should have known better. Um, but in Micah 2, woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them uh, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man 
and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I, against his family I am devising disaster. And I said, Hear, O you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up. I know this is very graphic. But then they will cry to the Lord. I mean, that's, isn't that amazing? They could do that and then they'll cry out to the Lord, help us, Lord. But He will not answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time because uh, they have made their deeds evil. And that's when, of course, Mike is one who says, um, who says, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly uh, with your God. And Micah also says to pray for Israel every single day. Well, he, he may. I know that's a psalm. A psalmist says that, but he may, Micah may say that as well. Yes, Katie. I feel kind of sad for the young people today hmm. because we haven't completed the dream yet but we're well on our way and they don't they haven't lived through the days of having three children next to your elementary school who had to go to a school three miles away mm -hmm. because of their color I've experienced mm -hmm. the color and the white Mm -hmm. signs, and I grew up in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. Maryland area, but I also <coughs> am blessed by the fact that I can have good friends who are of a different color, many different colors, mm -hmm. and am free to kiss and hug them in public. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love, my, my kids all have, you know, Friends of varying shades of brown, and and, uh, and and I just I love that, and I love that we have that in, in this in this church. Um, uh, this church is is predominantly white, but it is the most integrated church that I have uh, Episcopal church that I've been a part of uh, on a percentage basis, and um, and you know we've got a lot of work to do. One, uh, but one of the things that um, that I, I've also enjoyed, and I had lunch with my friend uh, Roger Williams. Uh, he's the AME pastor. He'll be back uh, during Lent for us. Uh, and we're talking about uh, a shared Ash Wednesday service uh, as well as the uh, sunrise service. So just always forming those relationships where we can find them uh, is really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ashley. What would Dr. King think about us today and with our current situation and culture and challenges and stuff? And I think things have come a long way. Like, I grew up in a different world, I think, than a lot of you guys. And there's a lot of change in that. But maybe what change do we have left to go? And how do we need to open our eyes and our minds to it? Because maybe it's easy to put blinders on as a white person in the U.S. and not think about the issues that I see. Well, certainly, certainly we have not uh, finished the journey. Um, and, and I think we have made great, great strides, but I speak as a, as a white man. So, I mean, I, one of the things I've learned over the racial tensions the last couple of years is there's a lot I just don't understand. There's a lot I can't, I never have noticed. Somebody wrote, I read an article that said they never noticed, and I certainly never noticed, so I read the article, that Band-Aids are, 
uh, you can't, they're for white people. I mean, you, you know, I put a Band-Aid on me and not, I, nobody can tell. And you put a Band-Aid on you and just big old, you know. Yeah, they make clear ones now. Well, they make clear ones now, but, but I mean, it's just, I mean, the little things like that. I mean, they're, systemically, we're not, we're not there. Um, and, and so, uh, to, yeah, no, this, I don't mean to open up a whole big thing. Dorsey had his hand up and would love to hear what you have to say. We have made, and this is a almost 78-year-old man talk, a black man talking it. We've made great strides. Mm-hmm. We have a long way to go. Yes. We just can't sit back on our haunches and say, the job's finished. Mm-hmm. And, and um, every, every once in a while, that ugly head of, of prejudice and segregation is pop up and say, hey, I'm still here. Mm-hmm. So you, you cannot let your guard down. Yes. Uh, John, we'd love love for you to close this out. I know this is not like a movie thing, but I think as a 50-something-year-old white woman, Mm -hmm. I think we've all experienced prejudices and oppression. By the way, I'm a social worker, Mm -hmm. so I Mm -hmm. deal with that. I did a privileged walk for some people Mm -hmm. from Nevada because what we don't know is what we don't know. Like, you didn't know, we never thought about it until we're made aware. But I feel like we have movements, hashtag this, hashtag that, hashtag something else. We're more dividing the nation instead of pulling together. Rather than saying, we the people, all of us are the people. And yes, and when we see those adversities happening, that's when we should step in, whether he, like he said, whether it's affecting us or not, step in and do something, and that's when we don't. Then we get more divided and more divided. And now I feel like, we're more divided now than it was in the 70s when I was a kid. Like, no one talked about color. Well, mm-hmm. not that I remember. Anyways, I grew up in Texas. There was all mm-hmm. kinds of color. Like, it's not about color. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, anthropologists and sociologists will tell you, by, you know, 20, 30 years ago, everybody's being nice, we'll keep shade brown, you know, because mm-hmm. we're, you know, integrated in genetics, and that's how, you know, things work. But I think all these movements divide us, not unite us. And we need to be more united. And I feel like it's not just the church's responsibility, but as a large organized movement or base of population, we can move the base. Sure. So there is so much more to say, and I may have gotten it wrong. Again, I've just been so humbled to even read about uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and I encourage you to do so. I encourage you to go listen to some of his speeches there on on YouTube and certainly to read uh, again uh, for yourself the, the letter from the Birmingham jail. Uh, Emily, I'll let I, I'll, I'll let you close out. It's just we're just getting started, right? But we gotta go to church now. <laughs> I promise to be brief. <laughs> I don't think I can go home today mm-hmm. without having said something. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first thing I want to say, as uh, you might not have noticed, but mm-hmm. as a black woman, yeah. <laughs> I saw you had strong character. Yeah. <laughs> I had to look twice. <laughs> you know, and, um, and I'm close to 70 years old, so you can imagine when I grew up. Yes. Yes, I grew up mm. in the low country of South Carolina. Mm. And let me tell you that I almost died one mm. day when I went to my doctor, and he took care of every white person mm. until. When he got finished, then he took care of me, and I almost died. So don't tell me about mm. it. You know, what is this? And I'm going to say one more thing. Yes, ma'am, we are more divided now. And I don't think we're making, we have made strides, but we have so many things to overcome. 
we have so far to go. And I'm going to say this, I'm going to step out and say this. It's come, it's being influenced now from the top. Mm. And, um, and that's sad. It pains me that we're hearing this on the news. Well, okay. we we have. I'm talking about someone who <laughs> whom we listen to. That's what I'm talking about. I know it's not a popular subject, but I want to say it. Well, you, free speech. Uh, <laughs> we are. Uh, it is our responsibility as Christians to look on look uh, look on the promised land and stand on that mountaintop and to uh, trust that the Lord is getting there and to work ourselves and be part of. Um, our baptismal covenant, which is to treat all persons uh, with great dignity. All right, got to go to church. Love you, mean it. Thank you very much. Amen. Amen.